right. Good afternoon and welcome to Close the New York Real Estate Podcast. I'm Mike Flynn uh, here with my partner, Cooper Knowlton. Uh, and today we're excited to be interviewing Assemblyman Harvey Epstein. Uh, hi, Harvey. Nice to have you on. Well, thanks for having uh, me. Yeah, no, it's, this is great. We, we really appreciate it, especially in the middle of a, a, a busy workday. Uh, Assemblyman Epstein represents District 74 in New York City, uh, which many people, myself included, uh, would call it the most interesting part of New York City because uh, you're stretching from Union Square to the Williamsburg Bridge and then up to the UN. Uh, if you're not from New York, you know, you can Google it and map it out. Uh, but it's, it's his unenviable task to try and protect affordable housing for New Yorkers. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be thanking him for his work more than once today. Uh, so let's get started uh, just with a little bit about who you are and the work you do, mostly for those who don't live in Manhattan and who I'm sure you know, write you feverishly every week. Sure. Happy to do that. And thanks for having me on. Again, like my name is Harvey Epstein. I represent the 74th District. I've been in the assembly since uh, early 2018. Prior to doing that, I, I ran legal services offices. So was, I'm very familiar with housing issues when I first graduated from law school. I represented tenants in housing courts. I understood their struggles. Mostly, I started out in Queens and then moved to East Harlem um, and then running offices around the city and really seeing that how the housing crisis impacted regular New Yorkers and ran for the assembly to really advance the values that I believed in and making sure that people had access to safe, decent, and affordable housing. And hopefully in the time that I've been in the legislature, we've done just that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, I mean, I guess uh, like the obvious lead-in question from there, and then Cooper, we can we can jump to you as well. But as a legislator, uh, what's your view of the current state of housing rights in New York City? Uh, you know, and, and maybe start generally with: Are they getting better? Are they getting worse? Or you know, give the lawyer answer of it depends. You know. <laughs> well, it, it, the true answer is it, it depends on depends on where you live and what type of housing you live in and what type of protections you have. If you're a market rate renter, then you're, you have very limited protections. If you live in public housing, you have a lot of federal protections. Or if you live in rent-stabilized housing, you have protections under state law. So the, the type of housing you have really impacts what your protections flow from and what protections you have for rent increases. We've seen in my district people who have unregulated units seeing 30, 40, 50% rent increases. So if you've been living in a place 10 years and your rent's going to double, you know, your housing stability is really in question. But if you're faced, uh, you know, a 2% rent increase, or if your rent is set to 30% of your income, you're really in a different economic situation. So the housing is really flowing from the federal or state or local protections that you have. In addition, that flows from what kind of subsidies are available. Some people have uh, federal Section 8 vouchers. Some are project-based Section 8. You know, we do get federal money for public housing. So there is additional funding available to provide that stability. In addition to the money side, there are also these protections that exist for rent-stabilized tenants as well as Michelama and uh, public housing residents, which are not monetary the right to be protected from organizing in your building, the right to get renewal leases, the right to have succession rights for family members. All those rights exist under the state and federal law, which don't exist for unregulated units. 
what what are the main issues that you're you know coming out of the pandemic? I mean, I know we're still sort of in the pandemic, but you know, over the last over the last year, twenty four months, um, what are the main issues that you're hearing about from constituents with regards to housing? I think the most we're hearing from constituents lately are two flow. One is this. Uh, the lack of work being done in pub- our public housing developments and the repair problems that we're seeing there. The other is the unregulated tenants who are faced with these tremendous rent increases. These non-rent stabilized tenants who are seeing these ridiculous increases that they have no ability to protect themselves from, which a bill that I'm a co-sponsor of that we're pushing in Albany with good cause eviction would prevent that from happening. On the rent, on the NYCHA side, what we're trying to do is get real funding associated to preserve public housing. There was a bill that was passed this year uh, uh, creating a, a trust, a state trust, a state authority that could allow access to additional Section $8 for New York State uh, for these public housing residents. And that's in the very early stages, and that'll be probably a multi-year process. But those two buckets are the ones we're hearing most about this year. Right. Yeah, I think even yesterday, uh, Mayor Adams had had his news conference about the additional funding, particularly for uh, you know construction. Um, and I, I think everybody kind of took note that the real estate media, in particular, that he did, he didn't want to be pigeonholed as to how many new affordable units would be bring, they'd be bringing on. And in some ways, I get it. Right, that's very hard to uh, to give a projection. Um, yeah, I would say yeah. from I'm working on a bill. I've been working on it for a couple of years to. To legalize basement apartments in New York, we estimate there's between three and four hundred thousand illegal units in New York City alone. So yeah. that alone, if we had passed the bill, which we didn't pass this year, um, potentially could bring hundreds of thousands of affordable units online in New York City that could be safe yeah. for the people who live there and safe for the first responders that go there. Uh, we weren't able to get that bill over the threshold this year, but you know we we did allocate eighty five million dollars in the budget a part of the five-year housing plan for legalizing these basement units, but we didn't pass the legislative authority the city wrote. And if you look at what Mayor Adams said yesterday, there's a little paragraph around the basement legalization, and they really feel stymied without the state changes in the law that they think is necessary to get it over the threshold. Right. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, full, full disclosure, I, I, I live on Long Island uh, in Nassau County. Uh, I don't know why I'm making this sound like it's a, it's a terrible thing, but I, I know just from following it that part of the issue is that it's it's statewide, right? And I think um, town of Hempstead in particular, if I remember right, um, you know, the representatives from there in Albany uh, were, were a big push against it, right? Because they, they have such different issues, uh, but it affects both. So I don't know if you want to get into that, like if there's any solution that could be more narrowly tailored to New York City. Well, if you look at where you live in Nassau County, you could look at the um, the housing production in Nassau County that we've seen in the last two decades. And Nassau County rates one of the worst counties in the country on housing production, not just in yeah. the state of New York, but in the country. So if I we need that. more units and we don't want to build bigger buildings in places like Nassau County, you don't want to put you know, large condos by the train stations because... We've heard from NASA and Suffolk and Westchester, that's not something that people want this transit-oriented development. Then the only other option is the, you know, not to build a bigger footprint, but to use the existing envelopes, which is what 
you know, these accessory units would basically be. So it's a way to help a homeowner. It's a homeowner rights bill. It says, you know, you own your home. My mom lives in Nassau County. She lives in Wontaw. She's lived in that house for 50 something years. Um, she has an upstairs part of her house. that has been basically empty for 40 years. No one's lived there. If she needed the income, she couldn't convert her house into a two family home, but that someone needs to live there. And that could bring more housing supply to places like Nassau County or into Westchester. And I understand the desire to not to overcrowd communities, but at the same time, we are living in a housing crisis and everyone yes. has to play their role. And I would argue that Nassau County and Suffolk County and Westchester and New York City all have to play their role in the housing production plan because we have a statewide housing crisis that needs to get resolved. I agree. And it's funny, I, I, I'm i sitting right now uh, as a neighbor to Wanda because I'm in Belmore. And what, what I've observed, I'm sure your mom probably observes it as well, is that, you know, when, when you're really restrictive uh, with this kind of thing, people do it anyway. You know, I'm not like drawing attention to my block uh, <laughs> or anything. But, you know, I, I, I know when I see a, a multiple dwelling, you know, that's that's not legally that way. And why are people doing that? Because they, they need help paying their mortgage or, uh, you know, they have they have family or friends or someone else that, that just don't have some place to go. And, uh, you know, we, it, there's this weird thing. And if you're not from New York, you don't get it, maybe that like Long Island and, and Queens and Brooklyn are thought of as as two different places. It is the same island, so there's a there's interconnectivity there. And Manhattan too, because you you really can't if, if you skip over to Staten Island, you can avoid Manhattan. But you know, Long Island is very much a part of the city, even if it's not politically uh, connected with it. So yeah, there's got to be alignment. Westchester too, um, although they have more escape routes that don't lead through the city. <laughs> but, you know, if you think about it, if you think about why groups like AARP are pushing for this, it is exactly that senior probably on your block who's like now on a fixed income, who's wondering whether they're going to be able to continue to live in their home. And yeah. sometimes it's not about the money. For someone like my mom, she's lucky enough that she's got a government pension and it's not about the money, but it's someone to like take the garbage out to the street, someone to mow the lawn or deal with the snow. Like when she was snowed in this past year, she couldn't open her front door because she couldn't get out and she couldn't, didn't, you know, she's 82 years old, right? So she just didn't have the ability to do that. She had someone who was living there with her who could be a helper. She wouldn't have to rely on her neighbors across the street to be able to get her out of her, her own home. So there's, there's the company, the emotional support, and there's the economic support. And that's why it's such a critical thing. And not to mention the lack of affordable housing. There's so many things we could do. This is literally a homeowner's rights bill that 80% of people across the state support. I understand that some people don't, and counties are worried about overcrowding in schools, and I appreciate that. But like you said, the people are likely already there. We're not overcrowding. What we're doing is recognizing the reality of life and saying, this is something that we know needs to happen. We need to build these units. We need to make sure that people have a place to live and we need to live with that reality. And we need to do it statewide because the crisis isn't just a New York crisis. It's not just a Westchester crisis. It's a state crisis that we need to grapple with. 
you know, I don't know where my kids are going to be able to live. Like, where are my kids going to be able to live in this city that they've spent their whole lives in? Or, you know, are any of your kids going to be able to afford to live in Belmore or Manhattan or Brooklyn? Like, unless we build, we're never going to get to this way. And the cheapest way to build is to allow existing building envelopes to build. It costs about $500,000 a year to build a new unit in New York City, but to convert an ADU is under $100,000. So you look at the economics, if you look at the environmental impact, you know, and we're all talking about the environment, you know, building a huge building has a huge environmental impact. Expanding an accessory unit in a building envelope has almost no environmental impact. So it's economically wise, it's environmentally wise, it's politically wise, um, but, um, that's a fight for another day still. Right. right. <laughs> uh, you mentioned earlier the one of the, the major issues specifically in Manhattan is the or in, in your district is the um, the affordability crisis of non-regulated units. Um, what are, are there any specific factors that you see have have really been driving that in the last few years? And are, are there any um, is there any hope or any any you know, do you believe that with the economy changing or um, new legislation that 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 affordability crisis, you know, will will peak at some point? Um, any kind of big picture thoughts on that? I'll say that, you know, it's you know people two years ago thought, you know, everyone's going to be fleeing New York because they won't want to live there. We're in the middle of a pandemic and we're the heart of the pandemic. And the reality is that. Um, more people want to live in New York City than have ever wanted to live in New York City. If you look at what happened in redistricting, we created a couple of additional assembly and Senate districts in New York because the population's coming to New York City. So we're in a place where we have more and more people wanting to live in our city, and we're not building in a way to keep up. So that creates a rental crisis, especially in the, in the market rate units. And that's what we're experiencing today. We're seeing a shortage of rental and condo and co-op units on available on the market, and that just is driving up prices. But you know, developers are still building. You know, we're seeing a lot of development happening in New York City. But if you're still building forty or fifty thousand units a year, and forty or fifty thousand people are coming into New York every year to want to live here, you're just you're just you're you're not you're not getting ahead of the problem. You're just barely keeping up, and so that's just you know really come back to bite us now because we are a city that you know millions of people want to live in. We are the largest population now that we've ever had in the history of New York. So that results in you know the affordability crisis expanding. We see less than one percent vacancies in units that are under twelve hundred dollars because. Those units are hardest to get. We see, you know, more vacancy in the higher end units, um, but it does mean that we need to build to the economic situation where people are at, and we need to make sure that there is enough units for people who live in the city to be able to continue to live. Why else do we have a housing crisis and see sixty thousand homeless people in New York City and ninety thousand homeless people across the state? <clears throat> it's a housing crisis that we can fix if we want to. Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasize uh, 
what you said that that more people than ever want to live in New York City because it's very easy for the for the media to run with that uh, that everybody's fleeing the cities trope and oh you know New York City how many times in the history of New York City has it been declared dead and then it reinvents itself and it's still you know arguably the the key city that's going to attract people from everywhere um, so yeah a lot of people left um, but a lot of people are are coming back and a lot of people never really left. You know, it's a it's a hard city to <laughs> to defeat, and COVID most definitely did not defeat it; uh, just changed it. So that's that, that can't be emphasized enough that we're we're still at this is the most that we've ever seen as far as the population goes, right? In New York City, right? It is, and 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 that's what we need to use our good tools. And we're seeing people not coming back to workplaces and office market being open. We need to convert some of those office buildings to residential. We need to have resources available to that. If we see hotels that have closed and aren't reopening, we need to allow those units to be converted to residential. We passed some legislation this year to allow those hotel conversions to happen without having to change the multiple dwelling law. Um, I think there are really things that we can do to make it easier. Hotel conversions, office co building conversions, money, we put $200 million in the budget to, to support those conversions. I mentioned ADUs. I, I mean, there's a whole host of things, good cause, because it could really help stabilize the market. And I think we need to do a little bit about all of it, including incentivize people to continue to build in the city. We need new housing. We need production continuing to go up. And we need production to go up in all over the city, in every borough, in every neighborhood. Right. We chatted last week with uh, Jonathan Miller, who's a appraiser and does market analysis for real estate across the country. And he was, we were talking a lot about this and he was, he was saying how, you know, remote work has, has kind of had this, you know, reverse impact on New York city where people who have jobs in, you know, different places are now coming to New York because they have a job. They might be working in, you know, it used to be, we had this idea that people who people would live in Cleveland, but they would have to work in New York. But now it's the opposite, that people who have jobs in Cleveland are coming to New York because they want to they, they live in New York. New York is where people want to live. And so you have more and more people coming to New York to live there. But office, we have this kind of weird thing where offices are still at, you know, 60% or 50. I don't know what the exact number is, but, um, you know, offices aren't filling up, but we have more and more residential uh, you know, the, the, the tightening in the residential market is really interesting. And I think that, you know, we've, we've been following a lot of the, um, you know, the office to residential conversion. I'm, I'm sure we're going to start seeing more of that. Um, maybe you could talk, you, you yeah. sort of touched on it briefly, but do you, do you think that that is something that we're going to, that, that you're working on or, or hearing more and more about? I think we worked on it in the budget this year. And we also gave the, the city the authority to waive some requirements under state law to support those conversions. But what we saw after 9-11 in lower Manhattan was we saw a whole change from a commercial office neighborhood to a real residential community. 10,000 people in 10 years moved down to lower Manhattan. And we continue to see people moving to lower Manhattan and those conversions that continue to happen. I think we're gonna see that in Midtown. You know, you know, I don't know, in Hutchin Yards, would you see 20,000 new units in Hutchin Yards alone, right? You're gonna see it happen throughout Midtown. You can see it continue to happen in, in Manhattan and in downtown Brooklyn. And I think what we need to do is make sure that we support that happening and encourage that to happen. Because if we are truly going to move away from, you know, my wife goes to the office once a week. You know, that's what she does. She goes to her office once a week. And so 
you know, when their lease expires, they're going to probably downsize if they need space at all. And there are lots of offices that are going to be just like that, where people are going to continue to work from home. And sometimes they'll go in, they'll need a place to go sometimes, but they won't need that office with a door, you know, they won't need that, that expense. So those downsizes will result in a real opportunity for residential development. And we need to take advantage of that. We're talking potentially a bunch of thousands of new units that can come online if we talk about all the office spaces that are in those predicaments. And I think it's I think it's a smart move for the owners of those properties. And we need to continue to incentivize those, that movement towards residential. Yeah, there's a we do a lot of commercial leasing work uh, and, and a lot of that is office leasing. And I could tell you there's there's a I think a record number of leases that are going to be coming up on their expiration dates in the next couple of years. And most of those companies, you know, that normally one or two years out would be talking about what kind of incentives do I have to stay? If I have to look for new space and build it out, now's the time to look. It's like that's that's being stunted because they're just not sure yet if they can attract uh, the office users back, their employees back, how they're going to use the space. Do they need you know more offices? Uh, that, that do they need to upgrade their ventilation? All these questions are really going to put a lot of these landlords under the gun. And you know these buildings all get financed, and everything is like a delicate balance. Um, if they can make it work with the financing and and you know the the uh, you know the zoning laws are are in favor of them making this conversion. I could see it happening, uh, and I think they're talking about. Uh, I forget where I read this, but I, I I read from too many places. I guess that like the Gen Z uh, population that's coming into the workforce now, they're favoring Midtown, and it's like it's like a cool place to live and hang out. Um, and I know you're you know part of part of where you are, Murray Hill. I'm sure. Uh, you know, you have like the, the blend of residential into like the Midtown East. So I don't know if you're, if you're, uh, you know, hearing from some of the younger constituents who are uh, maybe more verbal than, than normally <laughs> the younger constituents are, but uh, any, any on the ground feedback from people that uh, are pushing for this? You know, I've heard it from a lot of people that this is something that I think is going to be attractive to people. If you look just around the Flatiron area, you know, yeah. I mean, it's such a, it's a ripe area that we've seen, you know, a lot of, in that area, there's a lot of uh, psychologists who have therapy offices. Those doctors are not going back to those offices. They are continuing to do remote therapy, right? So those offices are, are likely going to, like you said, in the next two to three years, those leases are all going to expire. They're not going to want to renew those. So the smart move by a, la a landlord would be like, let's get out of these now. Let's figure out what incentives. And I think it's part of our job is to be thinking, what are those incentives look like? And that's why we did the hotel conversion bill this year. And I think we're going to really need to think about the office bit conversion and resources to help property owners convert, but also in that conversion process, figure out what set asides can be made available for affordable housing. That's what we were doing around J51. Fortunately, that didn't get resolved this year, and it's going to have to come back for another for, ne for next year. But I think that's a it's a ripe conversation for all of us. What What are your thoughts on? Uh, you hear a lot about Airbnb affecting the housing market. I'm wondering if you guys are working on anything specifically uh, related to short term rentals. I mean, honestly, the we we did this what, now five seven years ago. We the the law is clear what they can and can't do. Um, it's an enforcement issue more than a legislative fix. 
honestly. And the city has a has a decent team that goes out and does Airbnb enforcement. Um, I think there's another uh, problem that we have to grapple with, and that's um, it's renting. It's kind of like an Airbnb, but it's not. It's a landlord instead of renting out apartments, renting out rooms in an apartment. So they have a three-bedroom apartment building, and normally you get a tenant who wants to lease it. But what they're doing is they're renting each room to unrelated people and renting out rooms, which is also an illegal hotel. And we don't I don't think we have enough tools in place to, to manage that. And that's something we're looking at as well. That that's a good segue to one of the things I wanted to ask you about. When when you're looking to create housing legislation, what what sort of research tools, what kind of consultancy work, what kind of market analysis typically goes into uh, you know, making sure you craft the policy, you know, to fit what's needed. Yeah, so we we spend a lot of time talking to people in the industry, whatever the industry is, to kind of figure out what we're trying to advance. So I mentioned accessory dwelling units. We met with everyone. We met with the council, uh, New York City, the New York State Council of Mayors. We met with uh, Rebney. We met with uh, small property owners. We met with tenant advocates. We met with coalitions, and we had lots of meetings to get robust information. There were reports that were done. The Regional Plan Association did a report to give us guidance. And so we take all that data and we kind of smush it together to figure out what, what good policy seems like. And that's in every issue we work on, whether it's many good cause eviction or basement apartments, um, hotel conversions. There's lots of data and there are lots of advocates who don't always agree, who are really giving us good guidance and information. And based on that, we really take a path forward. And sometimes we, it's not that clear. So like like with basement apartments this year, people from Nassau and Suffolk County had some real reservations about it. So the bill didn't move forward, but it doesn't mean it's gone. It just means we need to keep talking to people and explaining and figuring it out and learning and using the data that we have and building on that data to continue to move forward. And that's what the off-session time is for, is to, to have those meetings, to have those hearings. We had a hearing last in last October about ADUs, and it sounds like we need to continue to have those conversations. Are there are there any you, you've you know talked about a couple a couple um, pieces of legislation that you're specifically working on, like the basement dwelling law and a, a few others? Are there any any other housing uh, specific housing related pieces of legislation that you'll you're planning to push forward in the in the coming year things to things to have on our radar yeah i think there's a lot we need to be doing around um mitchell Lamas and middle income housing so we did some work uh some of them wrote Lunthal and i co-sponsored a bill to to change the threshold to start stop the loss of mitchell Lama co-ops in our city from the affordability we need to kind of cut start stop the loss of units but also create a new middle-income housing program. We need to deal with our HDFCs, our low-income co-ops, and make sure there's enough protections in place for those shareholders to maintain the affordability that they get a damn tax cap and that expires in less than seven years, and we need to figure out how to do that because those buildings are having a really hard time getting financing. So we're gonna have to, we have to manage that portfolio. We're also gonna have to talk about uh, you know, we the 421A and new construction financing, that conversation didn't advance this year, as well as money for rehab. So there are buildings that are getting what's called J51. Stytown, my district, was uh, was an example of where they got J51 financing. 
how do we ensure that money to rehab buildings is in place to incentivize the work, but also to provide some kind of tax breaks or to have some grants. We put a five-year housing plan together, put billions of dollars aside. Um, statewide, there's issues around making sure the mobile homes maintain affordability in those mobile homes and also new constructions, especially in parts of the state where we haven't seen the type of growth that we've seen in New York City. You know, cities like Albany, uh, we haven't seen the growth, but, you know, how do we turn that around? We have a lot of turnover in cities like Rochester. How do we stabilize the housing market in Rochester? You know, issue after issue after issue. The other thing I'll say is on the rent regulatory framework, um, there's a thing called Screen and Dree, which is rental assistance for seniors and um, people with disabilities. A lot of conversations about how we change those programs to make them more uh, viable for people long term, and also to the, the cap on Screen and Dree we set at fifty thousand dollars, I think, three years ago. But it isn't hasn't changed with um, the cost of uh, the consumer operating costs, uh, you know, CPI. Super price index. So, how do we make sure that it continues to go up? So, as people's incomes go up, their protections go up as well. Gotcha, Mike. I don't know if you have any more questions, but I uh, I feel like that's a that's kind of a good place to stop. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I don't know if there's any final questions, but maybe we can go ahead. Looks like you're yeah. The only one that I think it's 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 a good segue uh, because you're you're mentioning some some uh, you know I think less known programs and, and rights that are that are out there and available. Uh, what are what are the key housing rental rights that you think the average New Yorker should know about that they probably don't? You know, I think pe most people have heard of Section 8, um, maybe Mitchell Lama, but like what are the key things that people really should know about? Um, maybe, well, maybe I think the most important advice to give to someone when they're thinking about where they live is uh, what protections exist in that building or in, in that apartment. And so they they know what rights flow from that. If they you know they they rent or they own, those have different protections. Condo and co-ops have different protections. So understanding the type of housing you're living in really is critical to be able to figure out what rights you have and what rights you don't have in relationship to it. Like if you're a market rate rental tenant and you complain to the landlord that you you know you get heat or hot water. You, that landlords have an obligation to renew their lease. There are laws in place that says they can't retaliate against you for filing a complaint around getting hot water, but people don't know those rights. So depending on that type of housing, you can find that going to homes and community renewal, the state housing agency, you can find out what, if any, protections exist. And then, then it really sets up the standard for you going forward. You could live in a building that you think is unstabilized, but the unit could have been deregulated or it could have been illegally deregulated and you could have rights that you don't even know about. So as I think it's first and foremost is where you live, what, you know, are you a renter or if you're an owner? And if you're a renter, what those protections are. If you're an owner, is it a condo or is it a co-op and what rights flow from that? Proprietary lease is very different than a condo owner and your rights are extremely different in those scenarios. And based on those, those facts, I think it's, you know, it's really important to understand um, what your responsibility is and what your rights are. And I, you know, so many people come to me and, and they say, I don't, this happened. You are like, well, this only happened because these are the facts. And sometimes it's really important to get in front of that to prevent bad things from happening. That makes a lot of sense. Definitely. All right. Yeah. Cooper, you want to, you want to bring it home? <laughs> sure. I, I guess the final question is just where, where can people go to learn more about you and, 
um, learn more about these issues. Any, any final, any final advice on that front? Yeah, I think people should reach out wherever they live. They should find, they should all know who their state assembly member and state senator is as well as their city council. So you can go to, you know, nyassembly.gov and you put your address in, you can find out who represents you and you should be connected to those people. Send them an email. I mean, I, I look at all my emails and I respond to all my constituents because I think it's really important that they, that they have a question that I have a responsibility to talk to them. They should then, you know, depending on what their issue is, they should, they should, our offices and, you know, can help guide them if there's a problem in their building and they have repair problems. There are community groups that help mobilize in our neighborhood, good old Lower East Side and Cooper Square Committee are involved in supporting tenants' rights. Homeowners don't know their rights. It's really their condo and co-op associations that are available. So there's a lot of spaces out there that can support someone if they don't know where to go. And the most important thing is to ask the questions you need to ask. Great. Absolutely. All right. Well, well thank, thank you so you much for your time. You. Thank you. Thanks for reaching out. And, and uh, yeah, really appreciate you have a great it. rest of the day. You too. Thank you. you. Too. Thank, thank you so thank much. You. This has been fun. Bye-bye.